I'm building Own Home because I'm deeply passionate about housing affordability. Um, there's really a, a housing access crisis born of the fact that, you know, asset price growth has dramatically outstripped wage growth. And the consequence, you know, it's really coming home to roost for, for my generation, the, the consequence of, of that dramatic asset price growth. Um, and we're seeing, you know, the, the average age of the first home buyer in Australia is now 36. So it's closer to 40 than it is to 20. Um, wow. And the average, you know, first homeowner is now spending an extra decade in the workforce um, versus sort of our parents' generation. And so that's having, you know, cascading um, consequences throughout, you know, uh, our, our society really broadly in terms of like, when are people choosing to have children? Like all of the things that cascade from this housing access challenge are, are really significant um, and, and, and really changing the, the way that we live. Welcome to Get Invested, the leading weekly podcast to help you unlock your full potential and enjoy your version of sustainable success that lies at the intersection of your three elves, yourself, your health, and your wealth. I'm your host and guide, Bushy Martin, and each week we go deep, sharing great conversations with proven experts in all walks of life, including the best investors, property experts, analysts, leaders, founders, sports stars, and health gurus, to uncover their secret know-how on where they invest their time, their skills, and their money, and the benefits that this creates. To help you find out what it takes to break free from the grind and discover your flavor of freedom, to create your freedom formula. You see, the truth is that everyone invests. Every second of every minute of every day, we're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, and sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and live your legacy by investing now. You'll enjoy the stories and secrets of high performers who invest for success in every aspect of their lives and discover the top tips on how to get started, how to make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately, to be living your dream, not someone else's. As you engage in each episode, you'll glean the information, inspiration, and implementation that you need to get empowered and get invested in imagining and actioning the life that you've always dreamed about. And Get Invested is proudly part of Property Hub, your home for property investment insights and inspiration. Make sure you subscribe now on your favorite podcast player to get every episode of Get Invested and Realty Talk, which is Australia's leading and longest running online property show that's full of red hot property investing news and insights direct from all of the industry leaders and influencers. You can also connect with me personally and join the Get Invested community of fellow freedom fighters at bushymartin.com.au or on knowhowproperty.com.au. Now, let's get invested. Hi, Freedom Fighters. Given the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth, I felt it fitting to pay a tribute to our lost Queen, who in many ways that many of us don't even realise, has had a profound impact on our lives. And her passing, while not surprising, given her 96 years, has still been a shock 
and has left me with a somewhat surprising, deep and all-pervading sense of loss and sadness that I can't quite explain or put adequately into words. In many ways, I feel like I've lost another mother for the second time. What about you? How have you been affected? Now, my personal thoughts and feelings here are not about the monarchy or Republican debate, but for me, she was one of those very rare individuals who has touched my life with a sense of genuine care. And even though I never actually met her, I feel like I knew her. Yes, as a child of eight years old, I enjoyed the excitement of travelling to Swan Hill with my parents to see her on a street parade. And my great-grandmother, who lived until she was 103, received a telegram from the Queen when she became a centenarian. But other than that, I've only heard about her. Yet in some strange, intangible way, she's had a subtle, profound influence on my life. Apart from my own parents and grandparents, who have now all passed, she's been the only other constant, consistent, stable figure who was always there in the background. In many ways, she's been a steady centre amid constant change. She's been the one element in our individual and collective lives that stayed reliably the same. And her fixed, reassuring presence is now gone. It's as if she was woven into the cloth of our lives so completely that we've stopped seeing the thread long ago. And it was not just her presence on our coins, our banknotes, and on our post boxes. Our respect and admiration for her has been built around her lifetime of self-restraint, her sense of duty and service, and her incredible work ethic. She's been the one element in our collective life that was consistently, reliably the same. As you know, I talk a lot about the enduring qualities of sustainable success. And she was the living epitome of all of them. Despite her position, her evident qualities of selfless humility, patience, persistence, discipline, hard work, wisdom, calm and stability are all bound by her genuine care for all living things. Her ability to stay true and consistent with her values while remaining open and adaptable to change as well as constant reinvention under the relentless media spotlight, has been nothing short of remarkable. And while she had no formal power, she commanded it by her presence, her poise, and her empathy and understanding of others as she lived and breathed the best example of true servant leadership I've ever seen. To many of the world's leaders, she's been their confidant, their confessor, and their conscience. So in many ways, the Queen has been the silent backdrop to all of our lives, a quiet, stable presence that was always there with us to support us in both good times and bad, a bit like our global mother. And in a strange way, she's allowed us to connect to ourselves at a deeply personal level. We remember not just her many milestones, but how her milestones have connected to our lives. In many ways, she marks the end of an era and the end of the way the world has worked up until now. And as our Prime Minister so well put it, Her Majesty was a rare and reassuring constant amid rapid change. Through the noise and tumult of the years, 
she embodied and exhibited a timeless decency and an enduring calm. So I think the reason that I care about her passing is because she genuinely cared about all of us. And it's fair to say that I can count on an amputated hand how many people I truly respect, but without even realising at the time, she's been one of them. For millions of people around the globe, the death of Queen Elizabeth II will be one of those where were you when moments. She may not have had an obvious impact on our day-to-day lives, but in a world of rapid change, Her Majesty was an evergreen guiding constant. And like losing a mother or grandmother, she leaves a gaping hole in our hearts and lives, and it's now difficult to imagine a world without her. So thank you, Queen Elizabeth, for the genuine care and selfless dedication that you demonstrated throughout your time with us. Your role model of grace and consistency that you've always adopted through thick and thin. And the positive impact that you've had on all of our lives by sharing our silent guiding line. Lyle, Queen Elizabeth. Hi, Freedom Fighters. Do you own your own home or an investment property? And if you don't, would you like to? Or maybe you've got a son or a daughter who'd love to own their own home, but it's locked out because of the huge savings that's required, and it just keeps getting larger and out of reach as home values increase. So what's holding you back? Because chances are, it's the massive and growing deposit hurdle. Because for as long as I can remember, there's been an ongoing public debate about housing affordability where the dream of home ownership is always just out of reach for millions of hardworking Aussies who are forced to chase their tails trying to put together a deposit only to miss out as home values continue to rise. But to me, it's never been an affordability issue, but an accessibility issue. Because a lot of working couples can afford the loan repayments, but what's stopping them is the massive cash deposit that they need to come up with to cover all of the property purchase costs for stamp duty and conveyancing, et cetera, plus the extra 5 to 20% cash deposit required to cover the shortfall on a home loan. So getting onto the property ladder is a big deal for everyone, but the biggest hurdle for first-home buyers is the sheer size of the deposit that's required. As an example, if you look at the current national medium house value of roughly $730,000, you need to outlay somewhere between $102,000 using a maximum loan jumping right up to $190,000 up front if you don't want to pay lenders mortgage insurance to cover the loan shortfall plus the stamp duty and on costs. And this jumps up even higher to an upfront deposit of somewhere between 150 odd right up to nearly 300,000 if you want to live in Sydney where the current medium house price is now well over 1.1 million. Yes, you heard that right. It's an upfront cash deposit of nearly $300,000. Now, you might be saving like crazy, But when house prices have been growing up to eight times faster than wages, you're left chasing your tail as the housing bus just keeps accelerating further away as you sprint to try and catch up. So you've either got to win the lottery or turn to Australia's other top 10 lender, and that's the bank of mum and dad, to beg, borrow and steal enough to make your own home ownership dream come true. Now, this is the main reason why the Australian dream of home ownership is now fading to pale for many Aussies. Until now, that is. Because what if there's an innovative solution that covers the initial cash deposit required and allows you to get into home ownership now while allowing you to put the required deposit together over time on a bit of a buy now and then rent to own arrangement? 
Because there's a recent Australian startup that's helping to solve this problem and give you an earlier pathway to home ownership that has an innovative business model based on the old lease-to-own approach. Now, rent-to-own isn't new, and it's had a bit of a checkered history here in Australia, but in simple terms, it's a bit like a buy-now-pay-later approach to home deposits. Now, this innovative startup is called Own Home, and it's off to an absolute flying start with a recent $31 million funding round from investors, including a stake by Australia's biggest home loan lender, the Commonwealth Bank. And the founder of this groundbreaking deposit hurdle solution, James Bauer, has developed the own home model after experiencing his own property purchase challenges in parallel with his work at Bain & Company, a global management consulting strategy firm that's based in San Francisco, where he was advising high-growth technology companies and global investors on new business models, including businesses tackling housing affordability challenges in the US. So to deep deep dive into this unique housing accessibility innovation, welcome and let's get invested, James. Great to be here, Bushy. Thanks for having me. Awesome, James. Look, I've been looking forward to deep diving for a while since we first spoke on Realty Talk some months ago. Uh, But to sort of kick things off, for those who don't know who you are, can you sort of give us a bit of a rundown on what you do differently and most importantly, James, why you do what you do? Of course, Bushy. So... I am one of the founders of Own Home, and I think you summarized it really well in in your introduction. Um, We're a business that's backed by the Commonwealth Bank, SquarePeg, and others, and we're a novel path to home ownership in the context of Australia, but we're certainly not novel when we look around the world and the pathways to home ownership that are incredibly mature in the US, Canada, UK, Singapore. Um, We're a rent-to-own pathway to home ownership, and what that means is We fundamentally allow folks to save towards their home while they're living in it. And we're looking to pull forward that experience of being a homeowner. Um, And in terms of why uh, I do what I do, uh, I'm building own home because I'm deeply passionate about housing affordability. And the word you used um, really resonates with me, which is housing access. Um, There's really a, a housing access crisis born of the fact that you know, asset price growth has dramatically outstripped wage growth, and the consequ- you know it's really coming home to roost for for my generation. The, the consequence of, of that dramatic asset price growth, um, and we're seeing you know the the average age of the first home buyer in Australia is now thirty six, so it's closer to forty than it is to twenty, um, wow. and the average you know first homeowner is now spending an extra decade in the workforce um, versus sort of our parents generation and so that's having you know cascading um consequences throughout you know uh, our, our society really broadly in terms of like when are people choosing to have children like all of the things that cascade from this housing access challenge are, are really significant um and 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 really changing the, the way that we live I uh, love it. I'll, we'll dive into that uh, shortly in a bit more detail because I want to sort of really unpack what the ripple and flow on effects are because I don't think yeah. many people have really got their head around it. And I, I didn't realise until you just mentioned then that the average age for a first-time buyer is now 36. That's that's uh, way older than what I would have imagined. So it's uh, clearly having a fairly significant impact. But, mate, the, before I sort of get you to sort of go back through your journey so far, share with us something that's unique or inter- interesting about you that you've never actually shared publicly before. Yeah. Um, 
I think, you know, maybe a, a few things to, to share. Um, I, I grew up on the Central Coast, uh, one of five uh, siblings, had a really idyllic childhood, um, but certainly no access to the bank of mum and dad. Um, my folks were incredibly focused on education and I felt a real sort of sense of responsibility to make the most of that investment um, that they'd been sort of incredibly focused on. And I'd like to think that um, I'm paying that back, not to them, per se, but rather, you know, in the process of paying it forward and, and making the most of the short time that I have on on this rock to do meaningful things with with great people. Um, I'd say one of the most foundational and, and kind of related elements was growing up um, with an older brother um, who had brain damage uh, from birth. And I think for me, that was just like a very proximate um, daily reminder of how precious um, uh, you, you know, our, our own ability to be the, you know, determinants of our life uh, and and really to sort of make the most of um, the simple opportunities that we that we have in front of us. And for me, that was making the most of, you know, the wonderful education that, that my parents had, had sort of invested in. And I think um, really set me up for what has felt like a really um, wonderful life today. Awesome, mate. It's, it's interesting. Uh, we, I think we uh, seriously believe we live in the best country in the world at the best time of the, of the world. And uh, a lot of Aussies take that for granted. So the, the fact that you've, you know, firsthand had experience with your own family as someone who, uh, for no fault of their own, has had mm. had challenges that, that we don't need to tackle. It's a, a great way to uh, shape your outlook on life. And sort of speaking of that, mate, I'd love for you to almost give us a Reader's Digest of your journey so far then uh, from that point yeah. on and, and just focus on where you've invested your time and energy and money over the years and why and some of the highs and lows you've experienced and how has this led you to what you're doing and where you are today? Yeah, so I, I won't, you know, go go all, all the way back. And I think we covered, you know, childhood there very briefly. Um, yeah. Yep. Maybe just before Own Home. Um, I was with Bain & Company for seven years. And for most of that time, I was based in San Francisco, as, as you referenced in the introduction. And it was just a really phenomenal time to be almost drinking from the fire hose of um, innovation. So I was working with our venture and growth equity clients, helping them think through uh, investment opportunities that were coming across their desk or that they were actively seeking out. And so was fortunate in that context to just look at hundreds of different um, business models, really with that criti critical sort of evaluative lens of um, how do investors think about, uh, you know, needle moving opportunities that are uh, going to, you know, return the fund for them. And yeah. I was really, I guess, fortunate in that context to um, look really deeply at, at the thematic of housing affordability, um, which is one, you know, you know, it's an asset class that's absolutely enormous. And it's a problem that's just acutely felt right around the world, housing access and affordability. But it's certainly a challenge with no easy solutions. But we're living at a time where there's the capital and um, willingness on investors' part to invest behind innovative 
pathways um, to to make you know meaningful inroads to housing affordability. And so, yeah. was really fortunate, I guess, to have that opportunity overseas. And um, and so see myself as like bringing back um, a model that is tried and tested. So we're not reinventing the wheel around. Um, you know, trying something in Australia for the, for the, you know, it's not globally novel. Um, and so feel very fortunate to be standing on the shoulders of um, giants overseas uh, and yeah. a model that's tried and tested. Love that. Uh, if we sort of look back over that time then and the lead up to what you're doing now with Own Home, what's, what's been the most challenging uh, event in your life that is, is brought about some of the greatest learnings and, and some of the best changes that uh, you've seen so far? Yeah. So during that time, uh, well, actually, what, one of the catalysts for even moving to San Francisco um, was born out of uh, my younger brother, so not my older brother, was in a, uh, <laughs> sorry to constantly take these in seemingly bleak directions, but was in a bad <laughs> um, car accident. And for me, you know, and was in a coma for quite a few months, for me, it was just a real wake up call of just how short life is and and how much can change in an instant. And my takeaway wasn't that you should necessarily, you know, live each day as your last, because I think that's, you know, a potential recipe for disaster and hedonistic depression, but a remind, you know, reminder to live with intentionality and um, to, to make the most of, um, you know, our time here. And so for me, that was, uh, you know, drove a real desire to go out and see the world. Um, I spent longer in San Francisco than maybe I originally intended, um, but feel very fortunate to um, have have spent all the time that I did there. And if I trace back, you know, what was the catalyst for, um, I guess, upping and leaving, I I definitely sort of attribute that to that sort of moment, which, um, yeah, like I said, was was a real wake-up call. Um, And so... um, grateful for that um uh, as as yeah as tough as that was for for, for my brother but, yeah i could, could well imagine you've yeah. certainly had some very close uh, family experiences then that, that at a couple of times have really jolted you if we if yeah. we sort of switch to the other end of the spectrum yeah. and given that you were really living and eating and breathing in a hotbed of innovation and and uh, achievement as far as that goes uh, how is that synthesized into your own definition of sustainable success. Yeah. So for me, I, I think it really has boiled down to making sure that I'm spending my time with people that I really respect and enjoy. And an exercise that I've um, done each year for, I, I think, the past decade that I've found incredibly valuable is this um, thing called the Life Purpose Report um, that maybe some of your listeners already do or, you know, in some form or another. And it's an hour exercise that I do each year and it's 20 minutes um, spent writing down everything that you could possibly want to do in your life, you know, brainstorming. And you realise that 20 minutes is, 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 is a really long time and maybe the list of things that you want to, um, you know, do isn't necessarily that long. And, you know, it's climb out <laughs> Kilimanjaro or learn Spanish or, you know, read X number of books. And then it's, 20 minutes of um, describing your life quite vividly five years from now. You know, who are you, who are you spending your time with? What are you spending your time on? Like, what does a day in the life of, of you look like five years from now? 
And then the final 20 minutes is one year from now. And the intent is to, you know, instead of living with, like, I guess, the incrementalism that can come from, I guess, living in the here and now and, and the short-term focus, by zooming way out to what are the things that I want to do um, before I die, um, ideally, you know, the version of your life five years from now has more is more informed by that list than necessarily being x degrees course correction from where you are today and i think it's a helpful thing to do each year because 20 year old you shouldn't necessarily um be defining the roadmap for the entirety of of one's life but it at least has felt like it's added a real sense of um intentionality and there's been a few themes that have um crept up and and i think finally for me there was um sort of an increasing sense of a lack of um sort of mission in in how i was spending my time um you know strategy consulting is really intellectually stimulating yep. but it's certainly at the mercenary end of the spectrum in terms of um being a, a sort of gun for hire, um, but very little control over what are the problems that you are working on um, yeah. if, you, if you step back. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great process that you go through there. So let's dive into that. Let, let's look at your yeah. most recent five-year vision and, and, and paint, paint a word picture for us as to what you're doing where and, and what does that look like? Well, yeah, it's a... Um, I mean, at a high level, uh, you know, I often speak about now, you know, own home as, as my life's work. I feel really fortunate to have found a problem that is frankly, you know, quite enormous. Um, and I'm now surrounded by a group of people that I think are whip smart, motivated and drive me to be better um, every day. And so I, I really do think that I've landed at some version of sort of like the perfect setup that I you know, articulated just a few years ago. And that's, you know, now working with my best mate on a problem that's deeply motivating and challenging. Um, I'm surrounded by people who have that challenger and, and also I think positive some view of the world, you know, f fighting to make the pie bigger. And as you said, Bushy, now living on the greatest um, city on earth uh, on some yeah. metrics. Yeah. Um, and right now, I think in this sweet spot of having a lot of freedom to still travel i um you know don't have children at the moment and so i'm uh, conscious of how much life uh can change um when you know or if if children come along yeah. and as contradictory as this may sound to to sort of that intentionality exercise <laughs> i'm also um hyper conscious that there isn't necessarily a destination per se that's going to be better than today. And so I think I'm starting to do a progressively better job of channeling that knowledge as I get older. You know, I think it's very tempting to think, oh, everything will be, you know, amazing when we meet, reach, you know, XX million in revenue or the company is valued at Y billion or we have, you know, X <laughs> thousand customers. Um, but I think that, you know, I'm just as likely to get to that destination and then look back wistfully on the time that it was just Tim and I in the room above an old bar, you know, looking at some air convents as the most carefree um, and wide open possibility days of, you know, my life. And so each chapter um, 
to date has been has been really great. Um, but certainly right now and the, and for the past sort of 18 to 24 months of being completely focused on own home, um, it feels like a really great sort of culmination of, of some of those like um, that in that intentionality. Totally agree. Totally agree. I'd, I'd, I'd love for you to talk to us about then, uh, apart from your obvious uh, uh, and pretty, pretty massive uh, personal investment in own home to, to make that happen, what are you and will you invest in to continue to achieve that, that sort of uh, shifting ideal lifestyle that uh, evolves as you continue to look at that every year? Yeah, well, well, I think you're absolutely right. Like, I'm I'm investing almost entirely into into own home. Certainly, all of my time, uh, energy, and, and willpower. Um, separately, though, as I think of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter is right there at the base. And for the longest time, uh, you know, the desire to own my own home um, was certainly a hugely motivating factor. And frankly, probably concern is also um, the right the right words. So yeah. I find myself relieved now that I own or more precisely the bank owns most of our apartment in Bondi. Um, <laughs> and as irrational as it may, you know, sound as an investment given the opportunity cost, that is certainly something that I want to pay off as a mortgage. Um, and I'm and I feel a sense of like or a, a confidence that you know a certain sense of financial liberation will will flow from that um achievement. And so that's certainly you know a modest um, investment focus uh, over the near term. Um, yeah, makes, yeah, makes sense. And I, and I, I guess given the, the pool that you're now swimming in with own home and you're a quasi investor that's doing due diligence for uh, first home buyers effectively, which we'll get into shortly, uh, what part, yeah. if any, do you think property is going to continue to play in your own uh, journey as far as that goes? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I'm conscious that there's um, definitely a hedonic treadmill of, you know, the larger home will always be alluring. Um, and so, uh, it, I'm, I'm sure like the, the family home will be like, and the focus on some level of financial security of having that paid off will certainly be, um, a really important part of, um, sort of my, my sense of like financial investing focus. Yeah. Um, Property more broadly, I, I feel I think you're absolutely right. Like I, I find myself swimming in it every day. Um, what I do find myself swimming in though is definitely the owner occupier problem. And yeah. so, you know, I don't have a lot of advice necessarily for the person with the, you know, fourth negatively geared property per se, but I do have a lot of thoughts around um the value that flows from having your own um place place to call home and yep. so so for me yeah a long way of saying um certainly um my own sort of family home will be you know a, a central part of sort of my focus on you know fi financial liberty so, yeah so of course to yeah no yeah. i totally get that and I, I guess here's the interesting thing uh, that a lot of people often don't realize that if, if you are investing in property you, you need to think and act like an owner-occupier because 70% mm. of properties are owned by owner-occupiers and investors really just slipstream on the emotion of owner-occupiers because mm. that tends to boost and uh, add value over time. So uh, <laughs> even though you might be thinking like an owner-occupier and you're helping owner-occupiers, you're actually in the perfect place to understand 
the the drivers that will ultimately uh, give you uh, personal and business wealth as far as the the property side of things is concerned. But I I sort of Mm. take a bit of a a sidestep there. Uh, What I sort of would love to dive into now quickly before we get stuck into the the ins and outs of own home is that can you share with us what's been your best and worst investment so far and and what you learned from both of them? Yeah. So I'd say hands down, my best investments have all been relationships. Um, I've been an enormous beneficiary of people paying it forward to myself. And my most important relationships have certainly by far and away um, been the most life-changing investments. You know, for instance, I take my co-founder, Tim, you know, we've been best mates since we lived together um, at law school uh, in Sydney at, at college. And so what's flowed from that relationship and all of the, you know, wealth of possibilities that's that's flowed from that has been a really phenomenal investment. And I don't mean investment in any sort of like Machiavellian uh, <laughs> sense, but just it, you know, relationships do take um, in, investing in. And, um, totally. and so I've been, you know, I'd, I'd say that's definitely been the best set of investments that I've made. I'd say on the worst investments, they're probably almost certainly the risks I didn't take rather than the risks that I have taken. So, you know, if I run the counterfactual on some decisions that I decided against, I can find a treasure trove of of missed opportunities that would have, with hindsight, been really quite transformational. Um, I saw a good tweet on this over the weekend. Um, I think it was like a VP at Shopify reflecting that, you know, they always had a really high risk tolerance, but every time they look at their choices critically before they turned 30, they look back and wish they'd taken more risk. And that the human brain massively overemphasizes the downside risks. And so his call to action was, you know, if you're young and reading this, take more risks. And that that really resonated um, with me. You know, I, I can absolutely result back and, you know, say I wouldn't be here if I if not for the choices that I've made along the way. But if I'm really critical with myself, could I have taken more risk? Like, absolutely. Um, not to live with regret, but that would be certainly a reflection on on my worst um, investment was probably the overemphasizing of, of short-term downside risks. Yeah, it's a really good point. And it, it, it is something that, because uh, time's a great healer and, and yeah. it gives the opportunity for great learning. And it's uh, often in the, the cut and thrust of things, uh, as you say, psychologically, we we tend to overemphasize the the downsides and and underplay the positive sides, and and as a consequence, can sort of back away from opportunities that that could really take us in a certain direction. So, yeah, you know, great sharings there on on that front. Thanks, James. Now, mate, I, I sort of wanted uh, itching to jump into own home mm-hmm. uh, to really sort of uh, break it down and unpack it so that people are really clear on it. But before we do that, just to sort of set the scene, I guess, I'd love for you to share what you see as the major challenges that aspiring homeowners face when when trying to secure their first home in Australia at the moment. Well, I think you summarised it really well in the introduction, and that is that the major challenge is the deposit hurdle. Um, we lived through an election, you know, a federal election just recently where cost of living um, was certainly the focus, but more specifically housing affordability. And then more specifically, again, it was the deposit hurdle. Um, that was front and center. And there's no housing crash that's suddenly going to make this 
deposit hurdle meaningfully more achievable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, referencing the age there of the first home buyer being 36, um, the and and you reference sort of the the upfront cost. So it's if you actually include stamp duty for the medium priced home in Sydney, uh, now it's three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the medium priced home. So that's the upfront cash outlay if you're going to contribute that twenty percent plus stamp duty towards um, the medium priced home in, in Sydney. And so that is really the challenge that aspiring homeowners face, in, in my view. Um, there is almost, you know, like a meme amongst our generation, which is, you know, rejected from a mortgage that would have cost me $2,000 a month. Don't mind me. I'll just go back to paying my $2,500 a month in rent. <laughs> and, um, and and so that's the lived experience of, of so many aspiring homeowners today is they're so capable of making those monthly payments, but are locked out because of that unequal access to that um, deposit. Totally agree. It's, uh, I've been thinking the same for, for many years now, James, in, in real terms. Uh, how many Aussies are affected by this, do you think? Have you got any any stats or research you've done around that? Yeah, so there's four and a half million young Australians um, who don't own the home that they live in. So that's 18 to 36, I believe, is is the age threshold there. And so there's some folks in there that are rent vesting. Um, so they own a property, but not the home that they live in. But that's sort of the um, the rump, so to speak, of of folks that are in a position that you would ideally think would love to, you know, be living in the home that they own, um, yeah. but it's four and a half million. So big some number. other, it is a big number. And, and maybe just as relevantly, um, if we think about the flow of first home buyers, um, of which there's, you know, something like 140,000 um, each year, the majority, so now 60% of those rely on the bank of mum and dad for some form, you know, direct financial support. And that is certainly not available to all. And so there's really, to your point around housing access, that access to the intergenerational wealth has certainly become sort of an increasingly, dis, you know, deciding factor in, in access to, to home ownership. Mm, 100%. We touched on some of these earlier uh, when when we uh, first started chatting today, Yeah, but I'd like to expand on this a bit in terms of the, the flow-on effects that the uh, accessibility issue is having. Well, there's a great um, report that's called The Housing Theory of Everything, and I think it does a really fantastic job of setting out all of the flow-on effects of unequal access to, to affordable housing. Um, and one of the most surprising, but also perhaps least surprising, is how it's impacting some of the biggest decisions that people make. So when do you know when do folks have children if they if they want to have children? That has been overwhelmingly established as being delayed as a direct consequence of how unaffordable people feel housing is. And so they're delaying having children in order to save up for that deposit. And that is just objectively taking far longer. Yeah. Um, the wealth impact is really significant. Um, homeowners at retirement are currently 20 times wealthier than renters. Of course, there's some, you know, causal correlation challenges in there, but it's well, you know, well established that housing has been a huge um, wealth creation engine 
um, yep. in Australia. And that is sort of the magnitude of, of difference that exists there. And maybe another is this sense of security. And so if we look at the numbers, you know, the average tenure of a homeowner is over 10 years, while the average tenure of a renter is around 18 months. And so that gives, you know, some glimpse into the relative uncertainty that's associated with being a tenant. And also, you know, there's some very, you know, obvious and natural consequences that flow from that in terms of people's ability to, you know, have a sense of community or how certain am I that my child is going to be in this school catchment area or am I actually going to have to move in 18 months? And so all of those sorts of flow-on effects are, are really real um, that flow from that um, difference in experience of renting versus being a homeowner. Mm, it's almost an invisible insecurity that's built in yeah. the exercise if you don't have that place called home. Uh, and, and while it might be directly in front of you, it, it sort of would tend to uh, impact on your thinking, your actions as a result. So it's a, a really good read. Uh, tell me, the with the you've sort of touched on the intergenerational wealth exercise that's starting to come into the exercise. How is that influencing things in this regard, do you think? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think it's clear that, um, intergenerational access to intergenerational wealth has become a deciding factor in access to, um, housing. And it's painfully obvious that that is very unequal, um, and has nothing to do with, uh, with who you are other than, you know, who, who your parents were. And that is sad that that um, luck factor is having such a significant role in something that is so clearly established as having such real, you know, consequences for folks' quality of life. Yep. Um, yeah, it, it is what I'd, I'd say on that. Yeah, no, good call. Now, you touched on this already also in terms of the the uh, raft of policy promises that were being made by uh, all parties in the recent federal election. And I guess you've had the benefit of, uh, you know, living and working overseas and seeing what other countries and, the, and the, the study that you've done around, you mentioned Canada and a few other countries in terms of how they've tackled it. Uh, putting all that together, give us your take on, uh, you know, what are uh, some of the things that are being done elsewhere and uh, as a precursor to us then sort of getting into the own home model? Yeah. So, I mean, what what we saw in, in the last election was that there was bipartisan recognition that housing affordability is, is a real and meaningful problem. And we saw both parties sort of throwing the proverbial kitchen sink at, at the challenge. Um what we also saw, though, was that a lot of that was demand side focused, and um, what I what you would imagine you would love to see the government um, enacting are policies that really support on the supply side um, and counteract some of the very natural, you know, nimbyism that's a handbrake on you know infill development and most likely to be able to support folks being able to live where they want affordably. Yeah. Um, but And so both major parties' solutions were very clearly demand-side focused, whether that was accessing 
you're super early to go into housing or if that's the co-ownership model, um, very little of it was directed towards um, supply side solutions. Um, yeah. Interestingly, though, you've got some conflicting policies, you know, even within the one party. So you've got the federal Labor government as having rent to own um, within affordable housing as a core pillar of their housing affordability program. Yeah. Um, but then in Victoria, um, they have a, which is a Labor um, government, they have a ban on rent to own. So um, it's funny to see, you know, it, even within the one party, some almost like schizophrenic approaches to um, tackling housing affordability. In terms of what we've seen overseas, though, um, we've seen um, rent to own, you know, rolled out um, as a core pillar of many uh, governments and, and governments that you'd think of as like closely analogous in terms of like Commonwealth states like Canada, the UK, um, even Singapore have very mature rent to own programs that are government supported. Yeah. Um, and really, I think that stems from this notion of, you know, what is what are the key ingredients of home ownership and how do we deliver on those? And they're really, you know, fundamentally probably security, the ability to participate in the wealth creation, and three, the freedom to invest in turning your house into a home. Like that's what we tend to think of at own home as those the three core tenants of that. And so um, that, in our view, is what the government should be focused on facilitating and, and supporting is the achievement of security, um, the ability of the broader access to that wealth creation engine and the certainty of tenure that, um, and, and the ability to therefore invest in making your space your own. Yeah, I love it. love it. That's a, a, a really good summary and a, a great segue now into own home itself because uh, I'd love for you to break it down into really simple and basic layman's terms so that uh, anyone that's listening in uh, can clearly understand uh, what Own Home does and, and how it works. So can you sort of uh, give us a run through on that, please? Yeah. So in a nutshell, Own Home is a path to own, own, home ownership that allows you to save for your home while you live in it. And what that journey looks like is really four simple steps. So that's one, applying to Own Home and getting approved for a buying power. So we might say, Bushy, based on your income and expenses, you can afford a $1.4 million home. So and just, like really, a, just like a bank application in effect really is what we're saying, yeah? Exactly. Asking the exact same question as a bank there. Yeah. Um, and it's really important because all of our customers are eventually going to need bank finance to buy their property back from own home. So yeah. um, we can't solve the serviceability challenge. We can help you solve the housing deposit challenge. Yes. Um, so step one, yeah, applying to own home, getting your buying power approved. Step two is finding the home that you want to purchase off the open market. And so that means, you know, participating in the national sport of refreshing realestate.com.au or the domain app um, <laughs> and finding, you know, your dream home on the open market. And their own home is actually effectively acting as your buyer's agent, undertaking all of the due diligence, reading the strata reports, um, getting the building and pest inspection reports carried out. Because uh, we're focused on making sure that that is a really sound 
investment because step three is you move into your home and you enter into a lease and option agreement. And that gives you the right, but not the obligation to buy that property back from own home at a pre-agreed price. And then step four is buying that property back from own home and putting uh, part of you know the deposit that you've been saving through your monthly payments towards that eventual purchase. So that's the very simple summary, but happy to dive into some of the detail there. Yeah, let, let, let's do exactly that because I think yeah. the, the first two steps are- uh, Self-evident. Yeah, they are. And and I, what I love about the uh, part of the equation that Own Home is assisting people with is actually buying a quality uh, property to live in, not just anything they can get their hands on because if it's, it's not going to make the grade as far as you're concerned and therefore have the confidence that that property is going to perform well long-term then uh, obviously it wouldn't do for them either if they were left on their own devices to try and do the same. So I think there's a an inbuilt uh, value out there just from the due diligence perspective that that comes into the uh, equation as far as that goes. But I'd, I'd sort of love to know more a little bit about the the, the costing side of the equation. You mentioned there's a contribution from uh, the, the lease rental. Uh, there's obviously a, a buyback formula uh, that comes into equation. Can you yeah. sort of uh, shed a little bit of light on those for us? Absolutely. So um, each month, the customer is making monthly payments and 35% of those monthly payments are going towards the accumulation of a deposit or purchase offset for that uh, home. And what the customer has is that right to buy that property back at that pre-agreed price. And that price is the price that we buy it for on day one, growing at 3.8% per annum. So what that, you know, if we take simple numbers, a million dollar home today, you can buy that back five years later for 1.2 million, less the 165,000 that you've accumulated in those pre predetermined uh, monthly savings. Yeah. Um, and so you would need to, in that case, you know, five years later, finance 1.035 million from a bank um, to purchase that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Thanks. Perfect sense. I, I guess the the challenging environment that we're coming into now. Uh, may test it a little bit in some areas, uh, given that, uh, you know, after the COVID catalyst and the petrol that's been thrown, thrown on the fire of property values, uh, we always expect for those of us that's been in property long enough, know that property follows sort of an S-curve uh, growth over a sort of an eight to 15 year cycle. And there are periods of, you know, anywhere between one to two years where property values will come back. And then quite often they'll plateau for five to eight years before they start to go through a a spike of growth again. Given the times we're coming into, is that is that affecting your thinking around uh, the locations and the types of properties that you're going to invest in? And uh, the is, is the approach changing at all, given the prospect of uh, softening values in some some areas? Yeah, it's a really good and an important question. Um, there's a there's a few elements to that. You know, one is the customers that we're focused on supporting, which are aspiring owner occupiers. So we're not supporting um, investment property owners uh, buying their you know third third or fourth negatively geared property. <laughs> one of the implications of that is that as a result, um, our customers are you know, relatively committed to this property in the sense that this is the community that they're looking to put down roots um, and 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 build a life in. And so 
that comes with it an important form of sort of resilience through the cycle. And yeah. as you well know, Bushy, um, the, the property market is subject to cycles. Um, and so we at Own Home have looked to um, to really study sort of the last century of um, property market performance and understand how can we structure Own Home in a way that's overwhelmingly likely to generate positive and great outcomes for our customers. Yep. And one of the most important elements of that is that locked-in rate of property price growth. Yeah. Um, and so that 3.8% over the last century in Sydney, you would have had to have purchased in the worst 14% of years to experience a growth rate lower than 3.8% uh, over, over the course of seven years. And I say seven years because that's the um, the default option period that right. our, our customers have. Yeah. And very importantly, there has never been a seven-year hold period in Sydney um, that has resulted in negative growth o- over a seven-year period. And so that's that's really, um, I think, important. And, and you'll remember from that sort of summary of, of Own Home that effectively um, the customer is freezing the amount that they're going to need to finance um, via a bank or, you know, should they be so lucky, some form of inheritance to fund the purchase of that property. So yeah. the amount that they're going to need to finance is is not is not growing because the um the deposit that they're accumulating effectively offsets um that locked in rate of, of price growth. Yeah. I think another yeah, um you know important point is the alignment of interest. So we're really focused on entry price for our customers. Yeah. And um that means, you know, I think what we've seen is just how much opportunity there is to be uh, a source of counsel on that home buying journey. So we're, you know, we're not going to be funding, you know, studio apartments in Zetland or Waterloo, you know, for folks listening around Australia, like <laughs> geographies that have seen like quite a significant and rapid buildup of housing stock. Yeah. Um, but but there are also a property profile that has performed historically uh, underperformed in terms of capital price growth. And so we're really conscious of what are the property pr- profiles um, that have historically uh, performed well and, and how can we look to replicate those learnings? Because while history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, it certainly rhymes. And so what are the lessons um, that we can learn um, and, and carry those forward? Love, it. Our Love that. Do, do you mind sort of breaking down, given the experience you've had to date, what are the property profiles that have performed well? And, and there's a there's a locational plus a, a a profile link that comes together with that. I'd love for you to share that. And then folding on from there, uh, where is a sweet spot? What type of person for what type of property is the, is the sweet spot for own home? Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll start with that last question first, which is the sweet spot um, profile of customer for own home are folks that are more than capable of making the monthly payments on a mortgage, um, but just don't have access effectively to the bank of mum and dad. And that might be because they literally don't have access to it, or they're choosing not to put their parents in the position of needing to go guarantor, um, you know, guarantor on on a loan. Yeah. So that that is a, a huge swath of the community. 
um, who doesn't have access to that intergenerational wealth transfer. Um, but there are certainly pockets of folks who, you know, universally don't have access to that. And for instance, first generation um, migrants to Australia don't have access to the bank of mum and dad in any meaningful way um, yeah. because that collateral certainly can't be pledged in in any useful way yeah. um, to, to the extent that that exists. Um, but yeah, so so profile, it's um, high credit worthy, um, disproportionately, you know, great incomes. Um, but like I said, you know, we're not, we tend to operate above the threshold of where the government support programs kick in, in terms of um, first time loan deposit schemes or um, stamp duty concessions. You know, our average purchase price has been around 1.2 million. So above um, most of those caps. Yep. Um, and so it tends to be folks who don't have access to those government concession programs. Yeah, so, which which makes perfect sense. Yep. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the property profiles, we um, the the profiles of our sort of portfolio to date, ten percent of our portfolio is apartments, which is under indexes versus the Sydney housing stock, yeah. which is about twenty five to to thirty percent apartments, and so we are disproportionately. Um, freestanding homes or townhouses where land is a larger um, element of the value of that property. Um, and that has certainly been a really important and significant driver of capital growth, um, the, the fundamental, you know, underlying value of the land. There's then, you know, as you would well know, and, and we were briefly speaking about um, this element of quality. And there's lots of dimensions to the word quality in the context of property yeah. but location um is huge and so you know disproportionately sort of like the inner ring of sydney um you know a 10 to 15k radius but we've also seen um an overwhelming amount of demand for regional hubs like newcastle central coast wollongong um as part of i think a a newfound level of freedom amongst um, professional folks to, to work from different places. And the homes that we've purchased there have all been for, um, for folks making the sea change from Sydney, um, yeah. moving, moving to those, those centres. Yep. Yep. I, I, I love that. And, and you may not realise it, but you're talking very much like an investor. All, all those parameters that you just spoke about, uh, a good investor that, that that we help educate and guide will be looking at exactly those things. So we'd be tending to avoid uh, units and apartments. If we're looking for capital growth, the, the land content is important. We're looking for scarcity. Uh, so we've limited supply, uh, landlocked locations. We're looking for strong demand. We're looking for diversity of uh, industry and employment. We're looking for strong uh, income uh, demographics so that people can... Uh, pay good money for property and continue to pay good money for property as the values in that area increase. And then you overlay that with lifestyle factors, uh, access to amenities, uh, any infrastructure change, 
and then had also overlaid that with school catchment zones, as you touched on earlier, because people want to be in a place where they can send their kids to school, where well, you've just given us a list of the, the the key qualities that you're looking for in investment. So uh, you're an investor, whether you realise it or not, I think, uh, James, in that context. No, <laughs> no exa- exactly right. And, um, and we see ourselves as like really bringing a lot of data to bear on behalf of our customers. And all of those data points that, that you referenced there are incredibly important. And, um, and I'd say getting better each day in terms of the availability of that data to support aspiring homeowners. But yep. then there's also just some really simple, you know, 101 elements of that data-driven diligence process that we've supported customers through as simple as um, getting a non-vendor sponsored building and pest inspection report, you know, and we've seen that reveal really extensive termite damage when that was written off as a, as a low risk in the vendor supplied um, program. And so, you know, we avoided a property that that builder said would only be, should only be sold for land value, uh, which was about 600. And then it went on to sell for 980. And so our customer was like, I just feel for that customer uh, that, or that homeowner that went and bought that property, not knowing um, the level of, you know, damage um, that, that existed within that property. Yeah. Love it. And, and as I say, I, I think the, that one of the major probably uh, unspoken benefits is, is the due diligence that you're doing effectively on behalf of the future own home, uh, homeowner uh, that's protecting your risk, but also majorly protecting their risk at the time when they officially uh, take the keys and, and get the bank to support the ongoing uh, personal ownership. So I love that. Uh, we've covered a fair bit of it. Are there any other things that we haven't covered in relation to own home that uh, we need to know, James? I, I think, um, yeah, we've covered on covered off uh, a lot of the really important elements. Um, and, and so I just really just reiterate that who we're here to support are aspiring homeowners who don't have access to that bank of mum and dad, which is a huge number of of Australians. And we started with this observation that because the deposit hurdle is so enormous in Australia, greater than pretty much anywhere else in the world, yeah. the consequence is that it cuts right across the the income and the creditworthiness spectrum. So in the US where folks are struggling with, you know, to save towards a $350,000, you know, median priced home, which is about the median priced home in, in, in the US. Yeah. When in contrast, that's actually just the deposit you need. You see that it naturally cuts across that income and creditworthiness spectrum. And so we see so much opportunity to really just support folks that fall outside of the pretty narrow remit of those government support programs. And there's totally. a huge amount of opportunity um, to to meaningfully move the needle for for folks. Like, you know, Tim, my co-founder, who's an own home customer. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think it's a, a very timely inclusion in the mix to what is becoming a, uh, it's always been a big problem, but it's a, a growing problem in terms of that deposit hurdle accessibility. Uh, love love your discussion on that and I'm really going to encourage listeners, uh, whether you are personally uh, faced with that challenge or you know people who are facing that challenge, uh, it's going to be well worth reaching out to uh, James and the team at Own Home and we'll, we'll have the contact details in the show notes and we'll get you to summarise those for us shortly. But before we do that, James, uh, I'd love to jump into what I affectionately refer to as the the ambush round, which or the bushfire lightning round, which uh, is just four quick questions that the listeners always like to glean your words of wisdom on. 
Uh, so I'd kick that off. Uh, what's your favourite quote and why? Robert Frost, uh, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less travelled by and that has made all the difference. Yeah. An awesome read as well, the book that that's attached to. Uh, I love that. Uh, and talking about books, what's the top book that you recommend people read and why? Uh, it's a bit of a textbook, but Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman, I think is just such a treasure trove of the mental shortcuts that we're, that are both so powerful, but we also fall victim to um, every day in our lives. So that that one is is certainly top of mind for me. Totally agree. I've got it on, on my bookshelf and uh, it's a great go-to. It, it really, the, the whole thinking element is something that not many people of us, uh, not many of us actually sit down and, and work through how we do things. So uh, some, some great insights that come out of that. Uh, let's awesome. return return out of the sort of investment piece. What's, what's both the worst and the best piece of investment advice that you've ever received to date so far? James? Yeah, I think just to, re, you know, echo on the worst investment advice, I'd say it's anything that over-indexed on short-term pain, like the potential pain of, um, you know, leaving an employer um, and that that can definitely feel, uh, the, the proximate pain um, can feel far more acute than it is as you look back on it. I'd say the best advice would have to be, as cliched as it sounds, you know, being conscious of the five people that you're surrounded by. Again, not in any sort of Machiavellian sense of curating that, but just a reminder to be intentional with two of the most important elements of our lives, which is who we spend our time with and, and how we spend our time. Brilliantly said, absolutely brilliantly said. And and sort of to round out the ambush session, uh, what's a personal happy habit, rewarding ritual or daily d- discipline that, that you've employed over time that's contributed most to uh, your success so far? There's there's probably a lot, um, but one that I am recently um, recommitting to is doing a lot more of surfing. Um, I find it so therapeutic, and uh, when I'm out there, I'm only able to focus on you know the moment of watching the next wave come through. So I find that to be such a zen experience that I'm redoubling my commitment to. Yeah, awesome. I uh, used to surf many years ago. I've uh, still make a nuisance on the hockey pitch, but I I haven't hit the waters for many years. But uh, th- there is some science around the the actual uh, the atmosphere that you're in when you're in the ocean uh, creates a, a sense of uh, in the moment and serenity that has uh, some really strong health benefits. So uh, w- without even realising it, mate, you're probably being drawn to that as a consequence of uh, how you feel after you jump out of the water. There you go. Awesome. So love that. Okay. Well, look, um, just to bring to a close then, to sort of summarise our awesome conversation today then, James, what are the key takeaways and actions that uh, we should be taking on board? I'd say that, you know, one, one of the key actions for anyone um, out there listening, struggling with the deposit hurdle is to um, find out and understand your options. Um, and, and there's a growing set of options out there. And Own Home, as you said, Bushy, is is part of the quiver of solutions um, to expand housing access. Um, so uh, check out ownhome.com. Um, we've got a calculator and, a, you know, three minute sign up form that'll reveal what's possible. Um, with the own home pathway. Love it. Uh, sort of looking to the future then, what's what's new and next for you and own home uh, as we continue on that journey? Uh, 
For us at Own Home, it's continuing to, I guess, champion um, housing accessibility reform. And so we're on what is, you know, really a, a state by state um, expansion agenda. Um, and that's really driven by the fact that the rules and regulations vary so considerably um, by state. And so we're going to be methodically um, tackling those so that we can make uh, the own home path available to as many Australians as as humanly possible, as quickly as possible. Yeah, I love it. The, uh, it always frustrates me, the, the layers of government to, from federal to state to then council uh, tend to get in the way and contradict each other, as you mentioned earlier. If you're able to influence that in any meaningful way, then you're going to have a massive impact, mate. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, I love what you're doing to address uh, what is a, a major and ongoing uh, problem. And I, I love the solution that you're putting on the table that's got you know the potential to help not only people with home ownership, but all those other flow-on benefits that we spoke about during it. So uh, thanks for your time today and looking forward to staying in touch. Me too, Bushy. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, James. Talk soon. Thanks for getting invested. Now, here's three easy ways you can take action to start making it happen, to ensure you build momentum and start living by design, not default, so that you're following your freedom formula. Firstly, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and keep the weekly inspiration coming. Secondly, get a copy of my book, Get Invested, for free, and find out what it takes for you to invest in living more and working less. Just visit bushymartin.com.au forward slash books, or knowhowproperty.com.au or click on the links in the show notes. And thirdly, join me and the Get Invested community. Each month, I send a free and exclusive email full of practical self-health and wealth wisdom that our current Freedom Fighter subscribers can't wait to get. Just visit bushymartin.com.au, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. And there you have it. In three easy steps, you're on your way to dusting off your forgotten dreams and making them a reality. Get Invested is proudly part of the Property Hub, your home for property investment insights and inspiration. When you subscribe to the show, you get all of your Get Invested episodes, along with Realty Talk, Australia's longest running and leading online property show for red hot property investing news and insights direct from all of the industry leaders and influencers. And finally, feel free to connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, as I'd love to hear your feedback, your inspiration, your ideas, and your questions and queries anytime. Thanks for listening. Hear you next week. And as always, dream as if you'll live forever and live as if the day's your last. Mm-hmm.